thank you all for coming. And for those of you who are watching on Ustream, either live or if you watch this later, thank you also. Um, I'll begin by a few words on the nature of history. Um, history moves uh, at times in a steady way, and at times there are dramatic moments in which history, so to speak, pivots, often on a very small point. I mean, I could go on all night here giving you examples of how the history of the world changed by a single decision, by, often by the weather, as in the failure of Suleiman, magnificent the Ottoman emperor who wanted to make Europe Muslim and uh, failed in his siege of the Habsburgs in Vienna because it rained too much and he couldn't bring his heavy cannon, or the failure of the Spanish to conquer England in 1588, the Spanish Armada, again, apparently because of the weather and the fall of the Byzantine Empire, or most of it to the Persians, I'm sorry, to the Muslim invaders because they chose the wrong battlefield even though they had a superior and much larger army. And so one person can make a decision which changes the course of history, at times for the better and often for the worse. And yet there are other historical periods in which not much is happening. There's relative stability and not much is at stake. And so history can go on for years and even centuries where there simply are not real opportunities to change history or make a dramatic impact because nothing's happening. I mean, things are just going on in the same way. I mean, think of it to give an example from surfing. I am from Southern California, and it is in my repertoire. So, not surfing on boards, but I know, I mean, body surfing, I know about surfing. So, sometimes the, the sea is high, there's a, but, but you don't get the type of curve to the wave, you just, it won't take you anywhere. There's no power in the wave. There has to be a certain shape to the wave so that it snaps. So the wave breaks in a certain way and then there's tremendous propulsion. That's all, I just came here tonight to talk to you about surfing and I kind of said what I wanted to say. No, but actually history, the waves of history are like that. Sometimes they come, you know, history moves in a way in which there's not much propulsion, but other times, you know, the wave breaks in such a way that people who are alive at that time by their decisions can have a, an extraordinary positive or negative impact on history, or they may simply fail to take advantage of the history mo historical moment, and they don't do anything when they could have actually had a dramatic effect. So, uh, we, who are here today, we who are alive today are fortunate, if you consider it fortunate to have an opportunity to go down in history and to do something extraordinary in history. We are fortunate because in fact, we are living at a crucial historical moment in which our actions can change history for the better. I don't think anyone here has any 
nefarious or diabolical plans. But And the reason this is such an important historical moment is because from historian's point of view, I think any serious historian uh, who studies the matter, uh, Prabhupada's mission is in a type of historical crisis. And the only way one can avoid that conclusion is by simply perhaps absorbing oneself in prophetic pronouncements that will, you know, don't worry about it. Prophecies will take care of everything sometime in the future, which is not really the way Prabhupada trained us. Prabhupada didn't, I mean, we believe in Lord Chaitanya's words when he says, my name will be heard uh, or my name will be preached in every town and village. But Prabhupada expected us to dynamically seize the moment and to act and not simply to passively or in a lazy way just sit back and wait for the prophecies to do it some, at some uh, you know, in undiscernible future time. So the crisis is as follows. Iskand's crisis, Iskand's historical crisis is as follows. Prabhupada, uh, even before he boarded the Jaladuta, devised a rational plan to change the world. And that rational plan was based on the geopolitical, historical reality of the it was, in a sense, very revolutionary that Prabhupada didn't get off the boat in London. He didn't take a boat to London. Prabhupada lived the first 51 years, the first 51 years of his life, as a subject of the British Empire. And I've said this before, but until the, great, the two great world wars, and World War II kind of finished it once and for all, the world was Eurocentric. Something like 85% or more of all international banking went through Europe. Europe, not America, was a technological leader, scientific leader, political, military, economic leader of the world. The world was Eurocentric. And in fact, most of the world was politically ruled by Europe. And in that situation, the most powerful country, you could say, was England, the, the British Empire. So naturally, when Bhakti Siddhanta wanted some of his disciples to go preach in the West, there was only one place you could go, and that was London. There was no question of going anywhere else. You'd never go to New York, for example. So after World War II, a new world emerged. The whole world order changed, and America emerged as the most important country. This was something new. We kind of take it for granted because during our entire life it's been that way. But in fact, it was something dramatically new. And Prabhupada, unlike some others, recognized the new world order. And that's why he got a boat ticket to New York and not to London, which was a very dramatic move on his part. For one thing, New York is much farther away from India 
place. There were many Indians in, in, in England. There were hardly any in America. So in, in every way, it was, um, you know, Prabhupada grew up with British culture. He, he, he met a few Americans in India. He spoke about an American friend he made uh, during the war. And, you know, I forget whether he's a, a journalist or whatever he was, but Prabhupada sometimes mentions how they, you know, they would talk about things. So Prabhupada not only came to America, well, when he came to America, it was part of a conscious, rational plan that if we want to save the world, and that's the point, that's what Lord Chaitanya said, Prithivite, on the earth, not in India. Prithivi, by the way, uh, sort of a feminine form of the word Prithu, as in King Prithu. Prithu means wide or broad. So Prithivi means something like the vast earth or the wide earth in Sanskrit. So Lord Chaitanya was talking about the world, not just India. And Prabhupada took that seriously and wanted to fulfill Lord Chaitanya's prophecy. So to do that, he didn't just say, okay, everybody go out here and there and preach everywhere. He thought, if America accepts Krishna consciousness, the world will. That was his strategy. And there is a negative corollary which is if the world doesn't, if America doesn't accept Krishna consciousness, it's very likely the world will not accept it. Because to get hundreds of countries all over the world, each one with their own indigenous culture, their own ethnic preferences, their own language, to get all these countries that have nothing to do with India, to get all these countries individually to accept Lord Chaitanya's movement. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And yet with one stroke, if America accepted it, then you get the whole world. That was Prabhupada's plan. And he personally talked to me about it many times. Many times he spoke to me about it and urged me to take his plan seriously and to focus on trying to make this country Krishna conscious. Of course, as the movement expanded in Europe, Prabhupada began saying American and European boys and girls, or European and American, so, which was all the West. Um, Prabhupada was so fixed on this explicit strategy, on the absolute necessity of making his movement work in America, among Americans, that when he was invited to often to preach to Indians, he actually he said he declined. He said that's not my mission. Of course, the world has changed. There are now three million Hindus in the country. Before there were, you know, vastly less. But still, that was Prabhupada's plan. That was his strategy. And so, Prabhupada as in, in his pranam mantra, Prabhupada enshrined the strategy in his own pranam mantra. Nirvishesha shunyavadi paschatya desha tarini. I mean, everyone says it every day. But do we really think about it? Like, what does this mean? And what does this mean for me? So, um, 
the crisis, ISKCON's historical crisis, which only someone with their head in the sand could ignore, is that in fact, Prabhupada's mission is not succeeding in the Western world. And uh, this point is so obvious that uh, I don't want to give examples which will only embarrass all of us. So I think we all know that. When Prabhupada was here, his movement was so relevant in America that Prabhupada used to, used to tell to some pride and so he would laugh that the movement was growing so quickly that some conservative member of the U.S. Congress in Washington stood up and said, if we don't stop the Hare Krishnas, in a few years I'll take over this country. Uh, Prabhupada, of course, he smiled at this, but I remember back then that when some public issue arose involving uh, religion, such as educa you know, religious education in schools or moral issues like abortion, or the role of women or whatever. People would call us. The newspapers would call us. Why? Because we mattered. We were relevant. So if you want a way to measure relevance, it's very simple. Who cares about what you think or say? Does anyone care about what you think or say? We don't get called anymore. It's been 30 years or 40 years since anyone really calls us. No one really cares what we think about anything because we don't matter in their view. So words like relevance are not merely subjective feelings, they are measurable facts. So what is the fate of Prabhupada's mission? If Prabhupada's whole global mission depends on making his movement work in the Western countries, and if it's, it's not really working, not really succeeding among Western people, what will happen in the future? What will happen in the future? What will become of this movement? Will Prabhupada be remembered as simply someone who made a great effort, achieved a lot of success, but ultimately did not accomplish his goals? The Western movement may basically shrinks into complete irrelevance and insignificance, maybe for a century or two until some other Acharya comes, hopefully, and reestablishes a serious Krishna consciousness movement in the Western world. So again, uh, if we want to think about the real world and not just sort of lose ourselves in self-congratulatory uh, ISKCON 50 celebrations, you know, while we are having gala events and congratulating ourselves uh, in the real world, that's what's going on. It's because of this situation that uh, I began Krishna West. Basically, I began Krishna West because I became convinced that Krishna wanted me to. After all, uh, none of us can do anything important unless we are authorized by Krishna. So I, I became convinced of that after many, many hours of prayer over months, actually. In fact, I knew that if I start this, I'm going to have to, this going to be a lot of work. And it's funny because when Prabhupada came to the West, he, uh, he used to say that at that age, and I'm a similar age actually now, Prabhupada said, no one wants to leave home. And in fact, 
even when Prabhupada's guru came to him in dreams and told him to give up family life and, and go out and preach, Prabhupada used to laugh and say, I was horrified. I was horrified by the idea because at that age, uh, you just want to live peacefully. When you reach this age, you will see that there's a natural desire just to live peacefully. Just don't bother me. And so I knew this would be a lot of trouble, it'd be a lot of debates and arguments. And, and so many times I actually said to Krishna, I prayed to Krishna, maybe you'd like someone else to do this, or maybe it's not really necessary. And uh, I just kept getting a no to all these things. So I realized that I can't avoid this duty. I have to do this. So to the best of my ability, the best of my ability, I have analyzed what the problem is. And, uh, you know, the world is not merely magical. It's also rational. And Prabhupada actually uh, urged us to employ rational thinking in his movement. You find it, for example, very powerfully. In fact, I'll read it to you now. There's a powerful statement Prabhupada makes in his purport to the Bhagavatam. Uh, 1522. Beta base will ever open. I'll read it to you. Let's see. It's amazing. I can actually just look for verses and purports right here. Okay, the verse is, of course, that famous verse, Yudang Hi So Prabhupada says in his purse in his purport. Um this is Prabhupada speaking. Human intellect, human intellect is developed for advancement of learning in art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, economics, politics, etc. Etc. is also very important. Etc. By culture of such knowledge, he's not talking about Shastra here. He's talking about advanced human knowledge. By culture of such knowledge, the human society can attain perfection of life. In other words, being learned, not pseudoscience, like saying the soul comes from matter, consciousness comes from matter, that's pseudoscience. Prabhupada's talking about real science, real learning, real academics here. He says it leads to the perfection of life. This perfection of life culminates in the re realization of the Supreme Being Vishnu. And therefore, all these uh, branches of knowledge will be employed in Krishna's service. Prabhupada says, when advancement of knowledge is applied in the service of the Lord, the whole process becomes absolute. In other words, when I or you or anyone, when we make a sociological analysis, a, a analysis in terms of political science, in terms of history, what is happening in ISKCON, what is going wrong, how can we fix this? Prabhupada says, when this knowledge is applied in the service of the Lord, the whole process becomes absolute. It becomes absolute. The personality of God and his transcendental name, fame, glory, etc. are all different from him, and therefore, all the sages, all the sages and devotees of the Lord. So if you don't, so if someone is, if some devotee is just against academic studies, he's obviously not a sage. 
You know, whatever one may think one is, one may think that one is a sage or that one is a spiritual leader, but Prabhupada says here, if you reject categorically the application of these sciences, human sciences and exact sciences, if you reject this in the Lord's service, you're obviously not a sage, not a real sage. Maybe a Falgu Vairagi. So Prabhupada says, all the sages and devotees of the Lord have recommended that the subject matter of art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, and all other branches of knowledge, I repeat that, all other branches of knowledge should be wholly and solely applied in the service of the Lord. Art, literature, poetry, painting, etc. may be used in glorifying the Lord, etc. So that's Prabhupada. That's not me. But I agree with him. So I have presented a, an analysis of why we are in this historical crisis since Prabhupada's entire mission depends on the Western mission, and the Western mission is not really performing. Now, unfortunately, and this is unfortunate, I really don't see any other analyses on the horizon which are based on these sciences and fields which Prabhupada says should be used and lead to perfection. So that's what I've done. I tried my best. You know, we're all imperfect, but I did my best. And based on history, based on social science, based on Prabhupada, based on Shastra, based on every relevant field of knowledge, I've explained to the best of my ability what the problem is and what the solution is. And I just don't see any other serious or even, I don't know, uh, unserious attempt to do that. And, um, and we started Krishna West based on those principles. One thing history teaches us is that, uh, and you find this throughout the history of religion, that uh, every religion, every new religious movement, every spiritual movement, new or old, uh, expresses itself through human culture. By that I mean that uh, Krishna consciousness or, or just spirituality is, is uh, what is ultimately most important to people. Like, who am I? What is God? Why was I born in this world? And so when people discover or believe they have discovered this divine truth, they naturally want to express their joy, their conviction uh, through human culture. In other words, they sing songs. They write books, either, you know, liter literature, poetry. They... They construct sacred places, which involves architecture. They cook food, they paint pictures. They express themselves through all the different uh, types of human cultural expression. Now, the point I was making, I've been making, is that people don't merely, let's say, express themselves through music or song. There's no such thing as music in general. There are only specific types of music. For example, about um, 
roughly, uh, well, my God, time is passing, 400 years ago. Roughly 400 years ago, when you have the last great cultural and musical period before the Industrial Revolution started, started to really change things in uh, modernity, uh, there was a particularly brilliant period of music in the West in which composers explicitly, consciously dedicated their music to God and, and wanted to glorify God. It's called the Baroque period. The most famous uh, composers of that period are people like Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, or uh, Handel, Georg Friedrich Handel, and so you know Vivaldi, and, and, and so many of them. I could give you a long list of names, but you might not recognize them. Anyway, so if you look at their music, take the music of Bach, which everyone I hope at least has heard of. Um, on the one hand, his music is rooted in the his own historical context. It's very much uh, Protestant, you could say, or, or German music of, you know, the first half of the 18th century. He was born in 1685, died in 1750. If you listen to Bach's music, it, it's Baroque music. He's not an iconoclast. He's not like Beethoven trying to break down all this, you know, forms of music, which even Beethoven didn't break all of them. He followed a lot of them. But anyway, it's just Baroque music, but it's, it's very brilliant. And at the same time, that music has appealed to hundreds of millions of people all over the world and, you know, ever since in all the intervening centuries. That means that that particular expression, which was very much dedicated to God, explicitly he dedicated his music to God. In fact, uh, one of the greatest uh, scholars of Bach, who was also the dean of my graduate school at Harvard, wrote a famous biography of Bach when I was there saying that his ultimate purpose in his music was to prove the existence of God. It was kind of like, it was almost like the Newton of Baroque music because music is very mathematical. It's all about ratios and, and so on and so forth. It's very mathematical. And so he was trying to show, reveal the glory of God through music. So his music is rooted in, in, in because Bach, of course, is born roughly around the time Newton is publishing his revolutionary study of the universe. And so Europe was just completely, I don't know, overwhelmed by this enthusiasm for, for being rational and scientific. And, and so to understand Bach, you have to understand what's going on in Europe in the first half of the 17th century, the enthusiasm for Newton, specifically the context in Germany, the fact that uh, if you were a composer, you had, you had to have one of two patrons. Either you had to compose for the church or for nobles because no one else would pay you to compose music. So all that is, you know, the specific historical context. And the music, at the same time, the music transcends that historical context. Because you can begin rooted in a particular history and yet something can be so brilliant, it actually achieves a universal expression that speaks to human hearts and human minds in all centuries or in many centuries in many different places in the world. And in fact, that's exactly what Bach did. One thing which I think helped, and then, and then so, well, we can ask the question, to what extent, let's say, does Indian culture, to what extent does Indian culture, let's say the culture of Bach's time, 
which is in the 1700s, or, or maybe the culture earlier, the 1600s, or even the 1500s, to what extent does that culture speak to the people of the world? And if not, why? If we just want to do the math, and this is not, this is not bashing anyone or praising anyone, I'm not talking about what is ultimately valuable, what is ultimately beautiful or meaningful. I'm simply talking about real history, real history. And the fate of that Indian culture, music, poetry, and so on, is very different from the fate of the European. Why? For one thing, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to reduce everything down to mundane ideas, but I think, you know, we're probably just said we're supposed to be using knowledge and learning to understand things. Europe at that time and up to the present day, for example, consider rock and roll music. I mean, the extent to which everyone in the world listens to it. Europe for the last 700 years has gone through a very expansive, extroverted period in its history, in which it was conquering the world militarily, uh, dominating the world culturally, and so it produced culture which simply rolled, every, you know, bowled everybody over. Whereas India, at the same time, for the last several hundred years, was in fact under the domination of the Mughal Empire, and then under the domination of the English. And in fact, we find that India at that time, rather than being an extroverted culture, tended to be more of an introverted culture. And that Indian classical culture developed at that time, not in contact with, not in conversation with the world, but actually in, in a type of withdrawing from the world. Again, there's no judgment in this of what's good or bad. These are simply the historical facts. And so a culture which develops an isolation from the world, where there's no serious conversation with the world, because in terms of international affairs, it was the Muslims that spoke for India, not the Hindus. And so a culture that develops in isolation, in introversion, we would not expect to have the same effect on the world as a culture which develops in extroversion in expansion, in ascendancy, and in conversation with the world. These are just historical facts, you know? It's just the way it is. So, if you look at the way the great teachers, people like Rupa Goswami, we are Rupa Nugas, we are followers of Rupa Goswami. For example, if you look at his Sanskrit comp compositions like Vidagda Madhava, Lalita Madhava, the great works, even Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. What we find is, and what scholars recognize, is that Rupa Goswami, in a very brilliant way, in an act of genius, perfectly assimilated and Krishnized uh, the intellectual culture of his time. To give an example, take what is called Rasa Vichar, analysis of Rasa, as in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu five primary rasas, five primary types of relationships with Krishna, and the seven secondary rasas. We all know that. Now, Rupa Goswami didn't invent that. In fact, that had been very popular among educated people uh, for 500 years. 
I mean, that's the time that separates us from Shakespeare, or earlier than Shakespeare, but roughly from Shakespeare. I mean, that's how long ago it started. In fact, just like, for example, we have movie reviews and we have, you know, book reviews. So in India at that time, because they weren't so much into technology, they were into the humanities. And so they would read even Mahabharata or, or, or other, you know, literature, sacred literature, and they would analyze it psychologically in terms of the plot, the story, to what extent did it evoke powerful emotions? How did it evoke emotions? In what cases was that evoking of emotions inappropriately? In what cases was it done sort of in a clumsy way, which they called rasavasa? And so on and so forth. So Rupa Goswami took a, an analytic system, which was very popular among intellectuals, art critics, literature critics in India at the time. In other words, the intellectual leaders of his society and in a, in a stroke of genius, in a very brilliant way, he Krishnized it. He applied it to Krishna Leela. Or, for example, if you look at Rupa Goswami's Sanskrit, in those works I mentioned, Vidakta Lalita, Madhavalita, it is a, there are different kinds of Sanskrit. There's classical Sanskrit, there's Kavya Sanskrit. Rupa Goswami wrote in a specific genre, those books, called Kavya, from the Sanskrit word Kavi, which originally means like a learned person, a sage, and then comes to mean a poet in medieval India, Kavi. So Kavya means the work of a poet. Poetics, Sanskrit poetics. You find this, for example, in Lord Chaitanya's defeating of the Keshav Kashmiri Pandit. You all remember that story? Basically, the Keshav Kashmiri Pandit was exhibiting his so-called power in poetics. And it, in India, there were strict rules for this. It was a very sophisticated system where in order to do good composition, you had to follow all kinds of rules in terms of semantics, syntax, syntax, alliteration, and so on. And so he defeated the Keshav Kashmiri Pandit, not philosophically. It was not a, theosophical, a theological debate. It wasn't a philosophical debate, like with Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya. It was a contest of poetics. And so Rupa Goswami wrote his book strictly according to those rules. So one characteristic linguistic feature of Kavya at that time is they write these very long compounds, which are you know, words separated by hyphens, where only the last word is declined. So you have to figure out what are the relationships between the words because they're, anyway, I won't go into the whole thing. Now, personally, it's not my own favorite genre, but it was very popular. It's kind of, you had to master that to be taken seriously. Rupa Goswami completely mastered it. If you look at what is called classical Sanskrit, which means roughly the Sanskrit of Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita, even most of the Bhagavatam, um, it's a very different style. It's a very different style. And if you look at the Sanskrit of the, uh, of the Upanishads, again, it's a different style. It's more sort of like no-nonsense philosophical Sanskrit. And the Vedas, if you look at the four Vedas, it's an earlier form of Sanskrit, almost comparable, let's say, to Shakespeare in modern English, with all kinds of grammatical differences, but it's still Sanskrit. But what's interesting here is that Rupa Goswami wrote in the Sanskrit of his time, he used the genres of his time, he 
Or, for example, Hari, uh, Hari Bhakti Vilas by Sanatan Goswami, which has all these rules and, you know. And Prabhupada said that that work has three, how should I put it, conditions on it. He said it was written for Indians. Number one, it's for Indians, not necessarily for Westerners. It was written for Indian grihastas, householders, and it was written for Indian householders back then. Because back then, if you didn't have a manual of ritual rules, you were not a contender. You would not be taken seriously. So therefore, Sanatana Goswami wrote one. What I'm trying to say is, even if you go back to the great Acharyas, the fact that these pure devotees, these Nitya Siddha devotees, the fact that they wrote pure literature with full realization does not change the fact that what they produced is culturally and historically specific. Just like whatever devotion Bach had for God, he expressed in a musical genre, which is very much Baroque, sort of mature Baroque, and specifically German mature Baroque. So doing, expressing something which is pure does not mean that you express it in a universal medium which has nothing to do with your historical period. And I think that's one of the common misunderstandings that somehow playing certain kinds of music or dressing in certain ways or cooking in certain ways is timeless. It stands outside of history. It stands outside of historical time. And this sense of the timelessness, the ahistoricity of our external expressions is simply an illusion. It's simply an illusion. And it's that illusion prevents, I think it's one of the main things that prevents our movement from actually reaching people in the Western world. In fact, I know it's a fact. There's, the anecdotal evidence is just almost infinite. I mean, there's probably not anyone in this room that hasn't experienced it in terms of your own talking, trying to talk to your own family, trying to talk to your non-devotee friends. I mean, everyone knows this. So for example, the typical sannyas clothes that are used in ESCON, are they eternal? Are they Vedic? Is that, you know, are they used in the spiritual world? I don't think so. For example, it's a, the typical sannyas dress in ISKCON consists of a Muslim shirt, a kurta. It's a Muslim word, by the way, kurta. It means shirt. And a dhoti that Bhakti Sananta borrowed from the Ramakrishna mission, which everyone, all the acharyas in our line, you know, takes to be way off philosophically. They're way off philosophically, and yet it was popular. So that's what it is. It's not, in fact, if you look at the cover, if you look at the covers of, bless you, of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, you will notice that Lord Chaitanya dressed very differently. So if we're supposed to dress like Krishna, which some people have concocted, there's no Shastra conjunction anywhere. There's no Acharya ever taught dress like Krishna, as if we knew exactly what Krishna wore. But if you're going to dress like Krishna, wouldn't it be more intelligent to dress like Krishna in this age? To dress like Krishna in his form of Chaitanya where he actually created the movement that you're in? 
Does, and, and what that would mean is I should wear a loincloth and maybe you know, just like some rags or something, which would probably make me even more popular among the leaders of the movement. So <laughs> I've often told this story that uh, one year, maybe it was like 1975, uh, we, I was in Vrindavan with Prabhupada. It was the second half of the Mayapur Vrindavan Festival and I was leaving so I went to say goodbye to Prabhupada in his garden. And when I went in, he said to me, uh, do you know the song of the six Goswamis? I said, yes. And he said, the six Goswamis are the ideal Vaishnava sannyasis. Study that song and you will understand sannyas. Now in that song, we find the phrase kopina kantasrito. The six Goswamis wore kopin and rags. Should we dress like that? Should we dress... Like if I dressed the way Lord Chaitanya, actually I was, if I dressed the way Lord Chaitanya does, as depicted on the cover of this con books, I would probably be, God knows what they'd do to me. Maybe like take away my internet service or something. (laughs) Something really cruel like that. So I think the time has come, you know, when things aren't working, when there's a historical crisis, Maybe the time has come to try being rational. Like, let's sort all this out. Let's look at all these common beliefs in ISKCON, which ones are rational, which ones are historically based, based on historical evidence, and which ones are simply mythology, superstition, imagination. And if we don't do that, we are not gonna have a spiritual science. There's all kinds of, super, I mean, to give one example, I've given so many times, I'll mention it one more time because it never ceases to amuse us. There is one, to give an example of superstition, there are, you've heard this before, there are malefic, malevolent, malevolent literally means wishing evil, you know, malevolent. There are malevolent beings in the universe who attack Vaishnava Brahmins and steal their piety when they chant Gayatri Mantra. I mean, this is already sounding very scientific. (laughs) As if your piety, the results of your pious deeds are like some kind of physical object, like a diamond ring or, you know, $100 notes or something that someone could just come and, and steal. In fact, Krishna says in the Gita, he just reciprocates with your sincerity. There's no like, physical thing like your piety, your pious results that, you know, that, it, that someone could just come and, and run away with. It's just Krishna. But anyway, there are these evil beings that want to come and somehow enter into what? I mean, where is that piety even stored? It's in your heart, it's in your brain, is it hovering in the air? Like, where is it? And is there any Vedic Shastra, is there any Vaishnava Shastra that talks about that substance, that object, which is your piety, which can be transferred physically from one place to another. So, therefore, I mean, based on this bizarre idea, when you chant Gayatri, you have to cover your hand or put your cloth over your hand. Now, what's interesting is these powerful beings can travel across the universe, enter into your subtle body, steal subtle things we didn't even know exist, like your body, and yet they're totally stymied by cotton. You just put a little cotton, <laughs> a little piece of cotton over your hand, and they just bounce off it. It's like that's their kryptonite. 
<laughs> and yet this kind of kind of lunacy is widespread. It's widespread. Prabhupada didn't do that. Prabhupada exposed his hand to these evil beings. Whoever they and who are they anyway? What are they describing Shastra? So, I mean, it, the whole thing is just, in a sense, absurd. Or, for example, that there's nothing quite as filthy, contaminating, and sinful as a needle and thread. And therefore, when you go on the altar, you can't use sewn clothing. Another superstition from India. Now, exactly why a needle and thread are impure is not exactly clear. But somehow it is. And so forth, you can't... So, I think for those of us who actually want to spread Krishna consciousness in the Western world, we need to present a spiritual science, not mythology, not superstition, not misogyny that, you know, men are not their bodies, but maybe women are their bodies. We really need to present a spiritual science, no nonsense, no superstition, no mythology, just a pure spiritual science. Because what we find in the Western world is that people do accept science, they're not gonna accept a cartoonish presentation of Krishna consciousness. And they're not gonna accept ridiculous ideas such as, such as God will only love you if you wear you know, archaic Indian clothes. If you go to India, go to any city in India, any university and count how many Hindus wear dhotis. You can probably count on you know, one hand. So what about the fact that the Taliban terrorists wear the same kind of dhoti we do? I mean, did they invent it? Did it come from the Muslims in India? Or, or, or do we find that Muslims were very enthusiastic to adopt Hindu customs? I don't think so. So any rational, sane human being out there in the world knows how ridiculous it is to say that a piece of cloth is spiritual. Now, if you use it for Krishna, it's spiritual, but you know, that means if you're wearing a sweater or a shirt or pants or, or, a, or you know, a blouse, that's just as spiritual. The idea that a particular type of South Asian dress style, which may have come, come from the Muslim world, somehow makes you more Krishna conscious. Who's going to believe that that's a spiritual science? Who's going to believe? It? I mean, what rational human being will take that seriously? In fact, here's a direct quote from Prabhupada. We do not care about dress. Dress is a dead thing. Dress is a dead thing. We are interested in consciousness. That's Prabhupada. So that's what Krishna West is about. It's ISKCON, it's an ISKCON movement, although even though the GPC declared this, even though we've declared it from the very beginning, some people take, you know, the, the, their minds move sort of at the speed of a tectonic plate. And it, uh, or a little slower. 
And it, 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 it just takes them a while to figure these things out. We are strictly following Prabhupada's teachings, I would say more strictly. Because if you read the papers I've published, I've given pages and pages of statements from Prabhupada urging us to do what we're doing. Not only allowing it, but urging it. That's the real Prabhupada. Prabhupada was not an ultra-conservative. Prabhupada was just a pure devotee. He got the job done. There are certain basic principles that we can't change. If someone in the West says, I don't like the name Krishna, you know, sort of tough mung beans. It's just, you know, we're not going to change that. So if you want to know what the basic principles are, you know, they, as I say, if everything else fails, read the instructions. So in chapter six of the Nectar of Devotion, Rupa Goswami explains what they are. Prabhupada explains what they are. We chant Hare Krishna. We practice bhakti yoga in disciplic succession, coming from Lord Chaitanya through Prabhupada. We work in ISKCON, which was created by Prabhupada. You know, no one should make themselves ridiculous and think they can compete with Prabhupada. There was only one person that I ever met or I've ever seen that had the purity and the potency to create an international society for Krishna consciousness, and that's Prabhupada. So why be a Prabhupada wannabe and make a fool of oneself? Why not just follow the real Acharya? So we work in Prabhupada's institution, we strictly follow Prabhupada's teachings, we practice bhakti yoga as Prabhupada taught it. Once you've done all that, you're actually allowed to think. You're actually allowed to be a rational human being. That's what Prabhupada said. In fact, I will... Um, there's one statement I want to read you from Prabhupada, which is a very powerful statement, which he, um, which is quoted all over the database, actually. Again, this is Prabhupada. Where Prabhupada explains the whole reason he created the movement. He didn't create this movement. His intention wasn't to create a society of shudras. We just shut up and obey. I mean, we should obey Prabhupada, but he wanted us to think. He wanted a society of Brahmins. And a society of Brahmins is not the same as a society of shudras. Brahmins think. They're intelligent. They're rational. Here's Prabhupada speaking. Uh, explaining why he started this movement. The Krishna consciousness movement is for training men, by that he means devotees, to be independently thoughtful, independently thoughtful, and competent in all departments of knowledge. That means sociology, psychology, history, And action, it is not for making bureaucracy. Once there is bureaucracy, the whole thing will be spoiled. So what does Prabhupada mean here by bureaucracy? Because the word means different things. He says, Iskand is, he says two things. Iskand is not meant for bureaucracy and that bureaucracy will ruin Iskand. So what does he mean by that? He says, he explains what he means. There must always be individual striving and work and responsibility 
competitive spirit, not that one shall dominate and distribute benefits to the others. I actually spoke to a leader who said that he does not want the people in his temple to think. This is not Dallas, obviously. He doesn't want the people in his temple to think. He will tell them what to do. In other words, his ideal is a Shudra community in which he tells everybody what to do. What Prabhupada actually wanted, wanted was not totalitarianism, which means that one person or an oligarchy decide everything, tell everyone what to do, and you can't breathe or burp unless someone gives you permission. That's not what Prabhupada wanted. Now, obviously, we have to cooperate. There are rules. It's just like America supposedly is a free country. You still have to stop at the red light. You still have to pay your taxes. To say that we are free and we can be independently thoughtful doesn't mean we can be troublemakers. We should cooperate. We should be good citizens. We should not disturb other projects, other communities. We should be ladies and gentlemen, in other words. But if you are being a lady or gentleman, if you are following Prabhupada's basic principles, then you are free to act. That's the society, that's what Prabhupada says here. He does not want a society or a community where one person decides and then just tells everybody else what to do. And no, independently thoughtful, an intelligent society, where devotees, Brahmins, that's a Brahmin society. That's what Prabhupada came to create, not a Shudra society, where we talk among ourselves, we can give arguments, we can debate, we can give evidence. You listen to me, I listen to you. That is a Brahminical society. And so I've done that. I've used my God-given freedom. I've used the freedom that Prabhupada explicitly gave to me to think and to try to figure out how to rescue his mission. And I suggest that's what other people need to be doing. Prabhupada says, once there is bureaucracy, the whole thing will be spoiled. There, in other words, once one person just dictates to everybody else, or one group, one oligarchy dictates, there must be individual striving and work and responsibility, competitive spirit, not that one shall dominate and distribute benefits to the others, and they do nothing but beg from you and you provide. And frankly, if you look at Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's like one day it was declared, okay, everybody's free, and the reaction was, huh? Like no one knew what to do. No one knew how to go out and make money. No one knew what to do because They'd been so beaten down that no one knew how to think. No one could, and so the country was just kind of like sinking because they just couldn't quite figure out how to be a free people. And so, uh, you know, they then embraced another dictator, more or less, you know, Putin. So, ISKCON is not meant to be like that. You know, no offense against Russia. A lot of nice people there and devotees. What I'm saying is, ISKCON is not meant to be a place where for so long we've all been told you have to do this, you can't do that, that it's just the whole art of thinking is lost. People don't take initiative. People don't stand up and create programs to, the, to, to save Prabhupada's Western mission because everyone's waiting for someone to tell them what to do. 
or everyone's waiting to be authorized to do what Prophet already told you to do. Again, we cooperate. We're not anarchists. We don't disturb other communities. We don't, we're ladies and gentlemen. You know, we follow the rules. But the rules that Prabhupada set up allow us to be creative as individuals, to create programs, to preach, to be innovative in cooperation with other devotees. That's the spirit we need. I mean, I mean, look, the whole Western mission has, has nearly collapsed. It, it, it's just a, a, a shadow, a fragment of what it was. And everyone's sort of standing around, you know, I don't know what's the, what word the karmis use, navel-gazing. You know, everyone is everyone's just kind of like waiting for someone to do something. Just like in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Everyone's sort of standing around waiting for someone to, to do something. And this is in the Western world. This is in America, which is probably the most entrepreneurial, the, the most, you know, can-do country in the world. And you have all these Western devotees who have kind of been beaten into passivity just waiting for someone to tell them what to do. So the ISKCON I envision is an ISKCON where, you know, people follow the rules, they don't deviate, but at the same time, there's all, there's all kinds of Brahmins, all kinds of creative, intelligent, dynamic devotees working together, creating programs and saving the Western mission. So Krishna West is not just, you know, attack on devotees or something, sorry. It's, um, it's actually, it, it, it's urging devotees just to wake up and start and become adults. And you know, you, you, may, you may be materially an adult. We need to be spiritually adults. So, so you find this situation where a devotee in his or her own life can be dynamic, have a job, you know, raise a family, buy a house. But when you come to ISKCON, it's like, I'm waiting for someone to tell me what to do. So, any questions? Uh, these are my humble points. Everything I say, I say with great humility. <laughs> Everyone knows that. <laughs> yes? Uh, if you're, I think you're right. I, I see a lot of times, you know, there's like, you know, devotees who are, especially from the Indian community, there's CEOs or there's somebody but then you see them function around the temple authorities and it's like, they, they want to know whether they should go left or right. And it's like, you're such a smart person, you're an engineer. I don't think the Indians, yeah, but I don't think the Indians are the problem. I mean, I don't think they're the problem at all. And, and, and I mean, I can respect the fact that let's say if someone from the Hindu background comes to the temple and is learning bhakti yoga and wants to be instructed on proper procedures. I mean, that's, I don't think that's the problem. I think the Indians, I mean, to their credit, I would give them credit for two things, the Hindu community in this country. Number one, they become very successful, as you said, and that's their credit. They should be given credit for that. And number two, uh, they've created very successful ISKCON temples which are, of course, focused on ministering to the Indian community. And they've done it very well. So whatever they're doing, you know, we have all these temples all over America that are, you can in one sense, flourishing within the Hindu community. 
So that's not the problem. They've actually done it in their own community. The problem is the Western mission. So we need to, we need to be a little precise here. The problem, you know, we're the problem, not them. And we need to develop the way, hey, can I get, a, can I get one of those? <laughs> Always go for the mercy, right? So, uh, anything else? Yes. Hi, Hi there. I got to get a little So, uh, Sakhalas are our only interaction with Christian West is through uh, Chandrasekhar. Yes. And uh, he has a very exuberant, a very uh, strong way of speaking. And it seems like we can hear you. Keep going. The recording, there's a lot of people listening online. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. I mean, uh, through the mic. microphone's working. It seems like it, that's the main thing. It's just a clothing thing. It's, like, uh, it, it's more than that. The clothing thing is, I think, an extremely significant symptom of the problem. And so... It's obviously not only clothing, it's many things, but that's a, I think that lends itself to analysis. For one thing, because probably more than anything else, it alienates us from the public. I mean, do not underestimate the superficiality of the public. So, uh, yes. Yeah. Just, just uh, about a month ago, his own minister, Dabaja Swami, is giving the Sunday peace class. Yeah. He was speaking about how when he dresses in the, the saffron robes, how it, it opens up so many opportunities for him to preach. And uh, from my interaction with Chandra Shekhar and Prabhu, it's like, it's, he's like, no, that's, that's not true. It's completely irrelevant. No, I, I, no, no. Okay. Dabaja Swami, of course, is one of my closest and dearest friends. And um, I was just with him, and he was actually dynamically preaching Krishna West in Houston just a few days ago. And, and we talked about that. He mentioned that to me. My view is that, how should I put it? Um, I think ultimately, strategically, this is my own view, there's more harm than good. I'll give you an example. When I was at Harvard, and in my, what they call their cohort, in other words, my graduate class, there was one girl from, I think from Japan, who was a Buddhist monk. Very nice, very sweet, humble girl. And she dressed in Buddhist robes. And so it was a great, you know, conversation starter. And I was kind of the most, you know, I was sort of the most advanced student in the group. So, you know, sometimes we would talk and uh, she was really nice. We have not, and, and so, you know, I say, hey, tell me about what you're doing and this and that. So because she was dressed like that, you know, we did talk. I had no serious interest in becoming a Buddhist. I had no serious interest in becoming a Buddhist. So when I see people either dressed, for example, in Jewish Orthodox dress or, or you know, or, or, or the or Orthodox or conservative dress of other religions, 
Um, you get in conversation, but I think the message for most of the public is, you know, this is just not for me. And I think that's the overwhelming message for most people. Sure, there are people that want to talk, but you know, people like world culture. People, to, you know, Americans, millions of Americans go on vacation to China, to Vietnam, to Polynesia. You know, people enjoy learning about foreign cultures. But what we're finding is that, that you could say that, you know, that, that interest, that, you know, that interest in world cultures and foreign traditions, which people have, does not translate into a successful Hare Krishna movement. Because we always hear stories about people that come up to devotees dressed in that way, saying, hey, where you guys been, etc., etc." But somehow or other, the movement never grows. So, you know, you can't build, you can't build a spiritual society based on anecdotes. Anecdotes are nice, but we have to look at what's really happening on the ground. What's happening on the ground is when, when people, when I, I feel that when we dress in these very, you know, exotic and, and at least for Americans way, this exotic way, sure, like I said, you know, Americans love to travel around the world and see foreign cultures. So two things happen, I believe, when you dress like that. Number one, you know, people, at least cultured people, they're interested, and number two, the public in general kind of puts you in a compartment where, okay, you are outside of our culture. We respect you. We respect your right to what you're doing. It's interesting because it's a foreign culture, but you're not, you know, it's not something that mainstream culture is ever going to do. And that seems, so, so I think we need a little sociology here. We need a little historical insight that the anecdotes, and we all know it, you know, where people come up to you and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? For example, I, I was in an airport one time, then coming back from, uh, I think from Mexico. And in the airport, there, were, there was this group, obviously some kind of religious group, they're all dressed in white, like white pants, white shirts. And it was like this religious community, all dressed in white. So I was curious. You know, I kind of wanted to go up to them and say, hey, you know, what are you guys doing? What's this about? Not because I had any interest in joining them, because I had none. It was just, you know, it's curious, it's interesting. Hey, what are you guys doing? And of course, once I go up and talk to them, they're going to say, yeah, we believe this, we believe that. And I, you know, trying to be a gentleman and say, hey, well, that's interesting, you know, well, good luck. And, you know, what? so I think it's a, I think it's a mistake to take those casual encounters chiefly motivated by curiosity as to mistake that for some kind of deep penetration into the society or to mistake that for some serious interest by the public in general. Because you see, when someone comes up to us in an airport or here or there in a market and says, hey, what are you guys doing? What's this all about? The story you don't tell because it's the story you don't know about is the other 50 people in that departure lounge that think you're strange. According to universally accepted good manners in this country, unless you run into some like crazy freak that doesn't have good manners, but it's universally accepted that if someone is obviously 
from a foreign culture, especially a foreign religious culture. You just mind your own business. You don't bother them. So that story of all the people that think it's strange, you're not going to tell that story because you don't know about it because they don't come up to you. And so I think what we're doing is satisfying the curiosity of a few people and convincing the nation in general that we are really not part of mainstream society and we're just out there. That's, a, that's what I think is happening in terms of, you know, by historical analysis, by looking at the results, social psychology, I believe that's what's happening. Yes? And, uh, outside of COVID, what are their strategies to do? The strategy is that we should do everything to make Western people feel comfortable, whether it's music, whether it's clothing, whether it's food, whether it's architecture. Prabhupada taught us that. When Prabhupada bought the first real ISKCON property in Watsika Avenue in Los Angeles, it, was a, it had been a Methodist church. It had typical Methodist church architecture. The devotees wanted to change it to put on a, you know, a Hindu Indian facade. Prabhupada said, no, I want it to be like an American church. The devotees were about to rip out the pews in the sanctuary and put the deities in because that was you know, the magnificent sanctuary room. Prabhupada said, no. He insisted on installing the Radha Krishna deities in the social hall, which he converted to a temple, which was a room half the size and, and less than half the opulence of the sanctuary. Why? He wanted Americans to come sit down on pews in a familiar atmosphere, keep their shoes on, and learn about Krishna. And that's why Prabhupada when he gave his Sunday lectures in LA, and many times I attended, he did not give the Sunday lecture in front of the deities. He gave it in the sanctuary where Americans could come and feel comfortable. So you have this bizarre phenomenon where Prabhupada is trying to be more Western and his Western sort of neophyte disciples are trying to be more Indian. As they say, ships passing in the night. So it's not just about dress. It's a whole attitude. It's about respecting the people you're trying to preach to. You cannot simultaneously denigrate and attract people. And it is one of the great ISKCON pastimes to denigrate the Western world. So much so that when I began Krishna West, I got all kinds of feedback, you know, from sannyasis and leaders and ordinary devotees that it was offensive to juxtapose the two words Krishna and West. Because Krishna is the holy of holies and the West is the evil of evils. And these, you know, brilliant thinkers forgot that Prabhupada used the word West in his Pranam Mantra. So it's a question of you cannot save the West if you're not even part of the, of the society. You, we can be inside Western culture as Vaishnavas, as practicing Vaishnavas, as faithful followers of Prabhupada, we can be within society. For example, think of a Catholic bishop. He's part of society. He's not outside society. He's within the society. Think of a rabbi. They're part of society. They're not outside. Well, the, the Orthodox, that's kind of more Hare Krishna. But if you think, 
if you think of, you know, respected rabbis, priests, they are within society. They're seen as respectable members of society. They're not the, the exotic other. So that's what we're talking about. Prabhupada wrote me a letter when I, when I first took sannyas. I wrote him and said I was going to preach in the colleges. He said, do not present Krishna consciousness as a bunch of rules. I hear these endless horror stories of someone giving a Sunday feast lecture in ISKCON and talking about the regular principles. Prabhupada said, don't do this. It's not about Hare Krishna. Prabhupada said it's not about rules, it's, it's the most sublime philosophy. You know, the, you know, some people who do all kinds of things against what Prabhupada said, but they wear a dhoti and think they're, you know, you know, the most faithful Prabhupada followers. Prabhupada says in his purport to the Bhagavatam 4854, make all adjustments, take all the risks, take all risks so that people in the Western countries feel comfortable with Krishna consciousness. All adjustments, all risks. Tamal Krishna Goswami, one of his many glorious achievements, he went to China. He went to China. And, you know, now we have thousands and thousands of Chinese devotees. Now, Tamal Krishna, with Prabhupada's full blessings, you know, cut off his sikha, let his hair grow a little bit, put on Western clothes, because there were legal barriers in China. And yet, one can easily prove that cultural barriers are much more difficult than legal barriers. France, look at France and China. Let's engage in a, you know, let's engage in a process called thinking. In China, there are serious legal barriers, but not serious cultural barriers and therefore there are thousands of Chinese devotees. In France, no legal barriers, serious cultural barriers, and the number of devotees, you know, in ISKCON you can probably count on two hands in a country with 65 million people. It's frankly a disaster. I was there last year for some time, I traveled. It's bad. It's bad. And that's no legal barrier, but very serious cultural barriers. So if we want to be rational, if legal barriers justified in Prabhupada's mind making all kinds of adjustments and it worked, what to speak of a situation where the barriers are much more difficult? In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna uses the term bhakti yoga, but he also uses the term buddhi yoga. It means the spiritual path of being a rational, intelligent human being. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna does not try to manipulate Arjuna into involuntary liberation by a Gyata Sukriti. Here, Arjuna, eat this. What is it, Krishna? Never mind, just eat it. <laughs> what we find in Bhagavad Gita is Krishna persuading Arjuna, giving rational arguments. He calls the whole process buddhi yoga. Buddhi means reason, logic, intelligent, discernment. So Iskand's great Western strategy to sort of a benevolent manipulation by a Gyata Sukriti, 
where the sound goes in their ear. They don't know what it is. They don't want to be devotees. They don't want to, they don't accept Krishna as the name of God, but ha, the sound went in their ear. Got up. It's like all these, you know, endless gotcha moments of Agyata Sukriti. As if, as if people could be against their will, without their will, just kind of manipulated into becoming Vaishnavas. Which Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, 1728, doesn't work, by the way, 1728. Any religious activity performed without really believing in what you're doing, very little effect in this life or the next. This life or the next. That's Krishna. Rupa Goswami says, Nupadeshamrita, you think the results of devotional practice are automatic? That destroys devotion. So people don't automatically become devotees. People don't unconsciously become devotees, involuntarily become devotees. The whole Bhagavad Gita is to try to persuade Arjun rationally, intelligently to accept Krishna. And that's what we should be doing instead of this failed policy, to be perfectly honest, of thinking we can manipulate people with you know, divine manipulation against their will, against their awareness, manipulate them so that they become devotees by Gyata Sukriti. This policy has been tried for almost half a century. It just doesn't work. And what we find is that when we respect the public by adopting some of their benign customs, I mean, I'm wearing right now a shirt and pants. I don't see any fruits pouring out of these clothes right now. It's not that when I put on these clothes, I suddenly become greedy and lusty and want the fruits of my actions. This is not fruitive clothes. This is not carmy clothes. For God's sake, it's just a bunch of cotton and it covers my body. I'm decent, I'm covered, it's comfortable. What in God's name is fruitive about these clothes if I'm serving Krishna? So if we could just like tone down the superstition and the irrationality and actually become a rational spiritual science, we'd actually be successful. I was in Chapel Hill uh, a couple months ago. We had a whole room full of very intelligent students. There are two tops, one of the top public and one of the top private schools are there, University of North Carolina and Duke. We had a whole room full of people. They were intelligent. I was actually kind of startled by their questions. I thought, I, I, thought, I didn't know there were still intelligent people in this country. I thought everyone was just like texting. <laughs> but they really asked intelligent questions and they stayed almost six hours and they chanted Hare Krishna because we were, they felt comfortable with us. You want to be respected in this country? Show respect. Show respect. Show respect for the culture you live in. If in this country there are customs which are consistent with, compatible with Krishna consciousness, like wearing decent Western clothes, like eating, you know, food in the mode of goodness. By the way, I, I'm not talking about Dallas. I have no idea about Dallas. This is not about Dallas. But what I can say is that in ISKCON in general, a huge amount of bhoga offered to Krishna, according to Krishna, is in the mode of passion. Because Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that food in the mode of goodness prolongs life, it doesn't curtail it, the way a lot of our Mahaprasana does. It prolongs life and it, and, it, and, it pro, and it increases health. 
Now, if you want, I mean, I mean, is that what we are? Anyway, so my point is that um, you want to be respected, respect people. You want people to take you seriously, take them seriously. You want people to care about what you're saying, listen to what they're saying. Don't just treat them as a bunch of stupid karmis who cannot be trusted to make their own decisions and therefore we have to go out on the street. Who cares what they think of our presentation because we are going to manipulate them for their own good. We are going to simply control them by Agyata Sukriti and make them what we want them to be and it doesn't even matter what they think. Their free will is irrelevant. We will control and manipulate them for their own good. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether they like our presentation or not. It's irrelevant. What the public thinks about us is irrelevant. That attitude, in my view, is arrogant, demeaning to the people we're trying to save. And uh, I think when we start respecting, they will respect us. When we listen to them and we care about what they think, they will care about what we think. That's because even God himself, God himself reciprocates. How can you expect the public not to reciprocate? Do you think that we can have such a demeaning attitude toward the public and they don't pick it up? They don't know what we're doing. They can't feel our attitude. Do you really think that? You think they're just all a bunch of fools? You know, they may not know about Krishna, but when it comes to human dealings, you know, they're, they're just as smart as we are and sometimes much smarter. Yes. Hi, Krishna. Hi, Krishna. Hi. Fine, how are you? Good. <laughs> um, time ago when I was thinking, I was thinking about um, Krishna West. In the beginning, in the beginning I didn't like it. I was little, um, because I, you know, I thought that everything was about the girls. Um, I, I don't know because you know uh, after 20 years in Iskand, uh, yes, we have many many rules. You know, we, we are following many rules and many things that senior devotees teach us. Um, so in the beginning, I liked it. Then I start watching your videos um, because I was thinking, well. Maybe I I don't have the whole information, you know. Maybe uh, something else. So I started liking a little more, <laughs> and then I started thinking, well, maybe people don't come to the temples here in America because we did many mistakes and we did many wrong things, and. The public knows that, you know, the people knows that. Honestamente, ¿de dónde eres? Uruguay. Ah, Uruguay. Sí. Qué bien, después platicamos. Um, first of all, if we think that the public remembers all these bad things we did, actually the truth is even worse than that. The public doesn't even remember who we are I mean, anyone that's under a certain age, which is unfortunately getting higher and higher, they don't even know who we are. So if, 
if you take it as still basically true, as Prabhupada said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. He said that in Gainesville. And therefore, you know, we're more likely to persuade people who are younger to make, to adopt something very new. And people under 40 years old, they hardly know anything about us. They've hardly heard of us. A disciple of mine was giving, speaking in a class at Florida State University, religion class. And so he said, okay, how many people here have heard of the Hare Krishna movement? And this is in Tallahassee, Florida State, where he actually had a prashadan program. How many people here have heard of the Hare Krishna movement? No one raised their hand. And as far as college students, Hare what? So, yeah, so we need to rebuild a powerful Western Hare Krishna movement. And if we don't, uh, it does not look good for this movement going into the future. You know, any historian that knows anything about the history of religions will tell you, you guys are headed for a train wreck. So we need to open our eyes, start thinking, you know, like wind ourselves up again, get our brains working, and start thinking about what's really going on, what the real situation is, do the math of how this movement's doing in the West, look at the numbers, and any, I think, rational human being would conclude uh, there's a serious problem here. And it's not just because of the past, because most people don't even know about that or anything about us. So what I always say is, if you have a better idea, I'll join you. You know, I'd say my, the, the, the two most important principles for me in Krishna consciousness, number one, love Krishna, and number two, lazy intelligence. That's what Prabhupada said, you know, just let other people do everything. So I love, I mean, if you can, if anyone, if anyone on earth has a better idea than Krishna West, I will ecstatically defer to you. I will, you know, you do it. I'll tell everybody I know to work with you. If you've got a better idea and you can show it's a better idea, nothing can make me happier. I just don't see it. So it's like, it's like, you know, it's like someone's drowning in the ocean. Some a boat comes, throws the person, you know, a, 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 what do they call it, a lifesaver? a rope, and the person says, you know, I don't think I like that lifesaver. I'm gonna wait for the next one. What next one? You're drowning. It just, it works. It works, you know, we're just seeing all over the world, it just works. And, and you know, if you treat people nicely, if you respect them, if you present Krishna consciousness intelligently, appropriately, and you don't, you don't, uh, put people off by being very exotic. Some people like exotic stuff. Some people are into looking very exotic in public and all that. You know, they like it. And, you know, so be it. Everyone has their own way. But most people are not like that. And so maybe we're like pre-selecting exotic people. <laughs> you have to understand that, that when you present Krishna consciousness in a certain way, you don't just get the public. You get a certain type of people with certain psychology based on the way you present yourself.
Prabhupada, I mean, look, I mean, remember, ISKCON is plan B. If you look at Prabhupada in India before he ever came and when he came, when he was alone in New York, he was writing letters to world leaders, the heads of, you know, great foundations like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation. Prabhupada envisioned this movement as attracting the leaders of the world, leading citizens who would create a Krishna conscious society. That didn't work. No one responded. And then these young people started coming. So, okay, let's go that way. But from the very beginning, Prabhupada wanted that. Prabhupada, he wrote me so many times, he wrote so many letters, so many devotees, preaching the colleges, we want educated people, we want intelligent people, we want the leaders. You know, the, the Prabhupada that some people want to keep in the center is hardly recognizable to me. Unfortunately, I'm the last active preacher in ISKCON trained by Prabhupada as a Western GVC. And I know exactly what Prabhupada said. Prabhupada somehow confided in me. You know, when I went to be his secretary in 1976, just before the Mayapur festival, uh, he never even asked me to do any secretarial duty. I didn't type one letter. He just, he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to tell me things. He did send me running down the corridors of his building, chasing people down. They left his room without prasadam. He really wanted everyone to get some prasadam. So he'd have his room full of guests and then someone would kind of sneak out the door and probably see me. I mean, many times I'd go running, you know, racing down the corridors. Here, probably wants you to have this. So, but, be, but besides that service, I will tell you one funny story. I don't think anyone knows the story. Prabhupada is trying to encourage people. So in Bengal, they have all these like emotional kirtan leaders that, you know, do it for money. So Prabhupada was trying to convince one of the leaders of the you know, Kirtan groups in, in West Bengal to join ISKCON. So he told him, if you join, he said, we have our golden avatar recording studios. So if you join ISKCON, we will, you know, we will, we will produce your music. So then Prabhupada said to me, get a tape recorder, produce his music. So then, you know, I, I ran, got a tape recorder, and, and then and Prabhupada said, okay, now chance. We let him chat for a few minutes, okay, and then let him go. Of course, he never asked me for the tape, or never asked me to. <laughs> just, I wanted to impress this, this village leader. So anyway, um, you know, the truth is what works. Prabhupada just wanted us to get the job done. Anyone that thinks that Prabhupada cared more about trivial, superficial things like, you know, your dress style, what, whether, you know, exactly how you cook. I mean, within, we have our principles. That he cared more about that than saving the world really knows very little about Prabhupada. So, any other point? If not, uh, yes. Well, I, I agree with you, but I'm, I'm just trying to that we have to take care of that. If you're trying to, to bring God consciousness to someone who's not exposed to Hindu philosophy or Krishna right. at all, right. And then you say to this person that God is this person who wears a dhoti and a peacock feather. And, I mean, do you start there or do you first, you, you go slower and you say first improve your consciousness, the quality of your life, and then... Right, right. First of all, I have to say the word dhoti is not a Sanskrit word. 
it's not in any Shastra. It's, anyway, it's an Indian tradition that Christian worship devotee. There's no scriptural evidence of that. I just want to throw that out. As far as where you start, it, where you start it, it Prabhupada said discrimination is realization. If you're a realized preacher, now, let's say you speak to a Western person that loves art, that loves, you know, the exotic art of India, then you say, oh, Krishna is blue, he's beautiful. That may be what convinces a person. I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. For most people, if someone, first of all, Prabhupada said, if they don't even know they're not the body, if they don't even know that there are spiritual bodies, then what are you going to talk about? So we start with basics. That's why Krishna, look what Krishna does. When Krishna reveals his form to Arjuna, that's at the end of chapter 11. That's toward the end of Bhagavad. It's almost two-thirds of the way, actually almost three-fourths of the way, through the Gita. What does Krishna begin his teaching with? You're not your body. Soul is eternal. Body is temporary. Just read the Gita. So basically, again, we don't preach at people. How can I preach to someone if I don't talk to them and find out who are you? What are your assumptions? What are your fears? What are your aspirations? It's like a doctor that, you know, doesn't diagnose a patient, just starts throwing medicine at the patient. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the first step is diagnosis. You have to know the person. When we preach, it, it has to be a dialogue, not a monologue. I say after doing this whole monologue here, but, <laughs> but then you came voluntarily. You know, it, 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 it's, it's actually different. Like, let's say you hold, a, like Prabhupada said, if you hold a program and then you invite people, people come, they're coming to hear you so you can speak. But if you just meet someone or someone's just curious, let's say someone just wanders into one of our centers, they're not coming to hear a lecture necessarily. They're just curious. So you sit down and talk to them. And so you have to get to know them. You have to know who you're talking to. Otherwise, we may say the worst thing to them. There may be some part of our philosophy that'll just turn them off because we don't know them. Whereas if we prepared it, so, so a preacher has to, first of all, you have to like people. You know, you can't just preach to people, see them as theological categories. You are a conditioned soul. <laughs> <laughs> they're not just theological categories, they're real people. And they have feelings and they have fears and hopes and prejudices and and assumptions and you you know it, it's a very personal thing where you get to know somebody and you, you and you you know you try to help them